the covenant. And if we go back to Deuteronomy 28, we can read the, the careful outlining of the blessings of the old covenant. If they obeyed the glorious things that would come of their country. And of course, the cursings, if they disobeyed, the horrible, horrendous, R-rated things that you just don't read with your children in Deuteronomy 28, the last half, the things that would come down on top of Israel if they broke covenant with Yahweh. And so Jesus has come and he's been doing very much these same two things, promising, cursing to that generation that generation that he spoke to, that would end up killing him, that pushed against the, the teaching of the Messiah, that generation would receive heavy cursing. And of course, there would be blessing for all those who listened and received and heard and allowed the words of the Messiah to settle into their heart and produce the fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. <clears throat> In his establishing of that new kingdom, in a new covenant, fulfilling the old covenant promises, one of the things that he had to do was dismantle and destroy, at least ideologically, the kingdom that had been set up by man, even within the nation of Israel. It had very much been corrupted, this Israelite royalty and priesthood and temple sacrifices, as we saw when Jesus came in and chucked everybody out of the temple and flipped over the tables and sconed people in the head with their coins and threw birds over, the, over the, the walls. He came in angry, kicked them all out because they had set up within God's old covenant people their own human worldly kingdom that was adulterating itself with the power of Rome. And so God, God in Jesus came to that generation and he, he demolished and he denounced that kingdom that was currently in place when Jesus came. He called down their leadership, and we've seen this as he came on the donkey, came into the temple, and he uh, uh, went in and he cleared it out. The next day, he, he kept coming back and teaching from the morning till the evening. And one of the main things he was teaching on was the corruption of the Old Testament Leadership, or, or not so much the Old Testament leadership, because that's the, by that we mean the good biblical structure of the Old Testament, but really the, the Levites, the priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Herodians. We remember each of them have come up to Jesus to challenge him, and he, he uh, put them in their place. He, he called them out for their errors and embarrassed them. He's de denounced their leadership, their land. He has already called it unclean. Their royalty, he has been rude, very much rude, and, and, and uh, denouncing the sins of Herod and those of the Herodian party. He has called down their teachings, everything from their rabbinical Sabbath rule keeping. He intentionally broke them as often as he could just to annoy the religious zealots. And right down to their sacrifices. When he cleared out the temple, he was saying none of these sacrifices matter. God doesn't care if none of them are made today on his festal day to make sacrifices because they're as good as giving nothing anyway. He decried everything that they thought that God would look at and be impressed by and owe to them victory over their enemies. And yet the most visible, the most unquestionable, the most tangible way that Jesus would be able to prove with authority everything that he has said is in fact true is by destroying the symbol 
the, the palace, if you will, not a literal palace, but the symbol, the building that was the center of the whole old covenant system, which is the temple. You know that in, in John's gospel, you actually see this dynamic play out. He comes in and, and he tears down everything in the temple. He did that twice, beginning of his ministry, end of his ministry. But when he did it at the beginning of his ministry, they were so annoyed at him and said, what authority do you have to do this? And he said, I'll, I'll tell you what authority I have. In other words, I'll prove to you that I am the son of man with all authority to call you out and tear you down. I'll do that. You know what the sign will be? Destroy this temple and I will build it back up in three days. Now they misunderstood him. They thought, how can you tear down this physical temple and build it in three days? It's an 80-year work in progress. You're crazy. But of course, he was speaking of his body, and yet he was utilizing their misunderstanding. He was saying, kill me, I'll raise myself back up. And yet, he was making that threat that if you need a sign, if you need assurance, if you want a surety that I am the Son of Man that has authority to destroy the covenant breakers, I will tear down your temple and you will not be able to deny it. And this is exactly what Jesus promises to them in Mark 13 today in verses 1 and 2. We have already had a little inkling of this idea of the, of the kingdom coming in power. <coughs> The kingdom coming in power, when we just skim read it, I know when we did this back in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, I had five or six people grab me after and say, you're not a faithful preacher of the word at all. They didn't say that. They know they would wake up in a hospital bed if they said that. But they, they said, you, you just skimmed right through Mark 9, verse 1. Like it was, a, it was an add-in to the last sermon and a quick intro to the next sermon. You didn't break it down. And this is what Mark chapter 9, verse 1 says. I told you then, I'll tell you now. We're coming to it as we pull out Mark 13. I do believe that Mark 13 is the exposition of Mark 9 verse 1. It is God's own explanation. He said to them, those people in his day, he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There's something about what Jesus is going to do in that generation that would not be everything God is going to do. It would not be the fulfillment of every piece of prophecy about the kingdom, about the gospel age and all of that. And yet, Jesus was going to do something within that generation, within that time before all the people standing before him would die. He's going to do something that can rightly and biblically be called the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom arriving with glory and great power. So go with me to Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As we've been waiting, as he's been declaring, I am coming with a kingdom. Your kingdom is going to be destroyed. I am the true Messiah. I am David's Lord. You <coughs> must either be covenant keepers by believing in me or covenant breakers by opposing and killing me. Look at Mark chapter 13 and let us read from verse 1 through to verse 8. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, always the party pooper, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone here upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, 
Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. May God bless his inerrant, powerful, authoritative reading of his word in our midst this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, here in Mark 13, Jesus Jesus has culminated his judgment as we read, not, not in Mark's version, but in Matthew's version of this account. He has sort of ended his day preaching against the leadership and he says to them, your house, this, this temple is going to be left to you destroyed. It's going to be left to you desolate. And so that's what would have sparked the, the conversation of the disciples that as they're walking out of the, the temple, they said to Jesus, right, but it's good looking, right? Uh, isn't it beautiful? Look at, look at these stones and how glorious this wonderful temple mountain structure is and Jesus says it's all coming down Jesus Jesus is not impressed by by all that humans are impressed by in religion before we even start pulling down what he means by this how this happened we at least need to just mark for ourselves how how quickly and how easily we are distracted as we think like, like little kids walking down a, down a street and we see something flickery, shiny, maybe even glittery on the middle of the road, we are, we are quick to run to where there is danger because we are, we are more easily impressed. And Jesus, our Messiah, our Lord, who we worship this very day and every Sunday till he returns or till we die, he is not impressed by what impresses us. It doesn't matter if we have the most beautiful, glorious, conservative, Victorian timber building with pews hand-carved from from Puritans and and Bibles in the back of the pews that have been hand-leather-stitched and and all of that. And we will want to say that amidst all of us that wear our ties this morning and our big, long, flowy, beautiful Sunday dresses and and look at this glorious building or or maybe maybe we sort of go the other side. I know some of you all want to be be Puritans and and that's fine. That's that's kind of good, I guess. And and then on the other side, we might have the the side of religious improvement Impressiveness that would be more the, the shining, flashing lights and the maybe maybe even some smoke, some smoke machines. Not here. I know, I'm not trying to tempt you, I'm not, not gauging what you think about. I'm just uh, there'll be some people who say the lights, the smoke, the band, the well-dressed people on stage, the, the impressive conferences, the beating bass. This is truly a, a work of God. And and both parties, or maybe even here today, and there's nothing tempting about this building. I know it feels like you're in a, a cemetery, maybe, with the grey. That's fine. You can feel like that. Or not. Tell, tell us later. I don't care. But tell, tell somebody later if you think it's beautifully done, if that's your style, mid-century goth something. <laughs> but but, but we'll, we, we're always tempted different ways. Don't let yourself, like the disciples, think that what impresses you is fine. Other people need to be careful about how they're impressed by earthly, worldly, carnal things, but not us, because we're gospel-loving, reformed Baptists. There'll always be something 
that we want God to be impressed by, which he is not at all impressed by. We've seen. We've seen from the parable of the tenants who did not provide fruit for the king. We've seen from the fig tree that did not produce its fruit in due time, the one thing that earns the blessing of God, the one thing that Jesus is impressed by in a church. And you can read this in the first few letters of the Revelation account in chapter 2 and 3 to the churches. What he says is what impresses him is works productivity in in personal holiness and family holiness and church-wide holiness, but also productivity in that we are taking ground for the kingdom of Christ, that we are proclaiming the gospel, seeing people saved, seeing the disciples built up in gospel maturity and doctrinal knowledge. That is what Jesus desires to see as he walks amidst us this morning. Does he see that in you? Holiness, productivity, The inability to just stand still while souls are dying and the the world is hell-bent on destroying itself. Gospel understanding, biblical knowledge, meaning proclamation and living out our bold confession. This is what Jesus would be impressed by. But back into his day, he saw none of that in the overly religious, legalistic time of the day. (coughs) And so the disciples being tempted in ways that Jesus was not, was very impressed by the stones. And he says, do you see these stones? Do you see these buildings? And, and, and it's hard for us today. I'm not, a, I'm not a slideshow pastor. You'll forgive me. But, 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 I, but I would encourage you to Google some pictures of the, the Old Covenant temple of, of Herod. It was a glorious, majestic, beautiful piece of architecture. It, it was said that in all of the Roman Empire, you, you'll find this hard to believe because we, we just assume that, that, that Judea was the backwaters and there was something glorious happening in Rome. But in all of the Roman Empire, it was said that if you have not seen Herod's temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, you have never seen true beauty. It it would be considered, where it's still around today, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was was Herod the Great, the the Herod over Judea when, when Jesus was born. That Herod, he was a master builder, a master architect. He always wanted to build glorious structures that would last for millennia with his name embossed on it. That that was his desire and his masterpiece. His greatest work was this, what they call the Herodian temple, the Jewish temple built and funded by Herod. It was glorious. Now, when we speak of stones, we we don't mean bricks like we have in our wall here, a couple of inches wide, a couple of inches long and tall, big, heavy bricks. It would hurt if you dropped them on your toes. Now we mean hundreds of tons each. These stones were meters wide by meters long and meters high. They were enormous pieces of white Jerusalem stone that had been quarried from the mountain that the temple was built on. It was a glorious structure, but but not just. I know sometimes we, we think of the temple as just one building, but it wasn't that. It was, of course, the one elevated building where the Holy of Holies was and sacrifices were made, but it was a whole 20 rugby field structure. It was was as big as 20 rugby fields all put together, this huge court complex, so that when you were back a few kilometers from the mountain, as you were sort of making your way towards Jerusalem, it looked year-round as if the whole mountain was was snow-capped because of this glorious, huge white structure up on top of the mountain. And yet the the prized jewel of that whole structure was, of course, the temple. 
It's important to note that there was so much gold put into this building that they'd, they'd laid in the front, the, the east-facing, so sunrise-facing front of the temple where you would enter with thick tablets of gold, the, the entire face. And, of course, all around the top, there was golden crowns around it as well so that, so that when, the, when the sun rose on it, Basically, until the afternoon and, and the sun was behind it, it would shine and glisten and reflect in such a blinding way that it was said that, again, if you were making your pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you would just see a, a star standing on top of a mountain, shining brightly, and you could never look at it straight on unless it blinded you. This is a beautiful structure that, that they no doubt have every reason, humanly speaking, to say, look at these beautiful stones. Look at these beautiful buildings. God is here. And in fact, he had been. He had been in that old covenant time when he had his blessed people who obeyed his words. And yet Jesus says, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. <clears throat> it's sort of been jarring for them. But this becomes for us, an interpretive key for what the, the prophecy that Jesus is about to deliver. I know you're really waiting to get into all of this wars and rumors of wars stuff, the really exciting stuff, but allow me to do my due diligence as a pastor and just give us some context. This, this, this language that Jesus has just used of the destroyed temple, which happens within 40 years, just 37 years later in the year AD 70. That becomes for us quite, a, quite an interpretive paradigm. There's, there's other opinions about this. I know I'm, I'm going to preach what I see as the biblical narrative, but, but this idea that in 40 years the Romans would come under the general Titus and tear down the city and destroy the temple and slaughter the Jews that had gathered for Passover, upward of 2 million people in the city, that becomes for us an interpretive paradigm. This generation that Jesus is speaking to would be the generation that not just turns away a prophet, not just turns away some other lesser kings, but the very generation that is the most sinful generation that has ever lived that would turn away the Messiah and in fact butcher him with the Romans. Jesus would say to this generation, you remember earlier on, he has said that if Sodom and Gomorrah had been around in my day, they would have repented. You remember he's saying that this generation, you're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the bloodthirsty, homoerotic town that God poured fire down from heaven. They are one-upping you in terms of religious righteousness, Jesus says, to that generation. And so for all of their disobedience, for their opposition and murder of the Messiah, Jesus would bring back the Roman armies and pour out his judgment onto this nation. The Roman Jewish wars happened in about three and a half year period, 67 to 70 AD, and it ended with a five month siege of the city where it was burned down and the temple itself destroyed. So as we go into the verses now, in Mark 13, I'm going to see that verse 3 till verse 32 are prophecies all about, not primarily about with a second fulfillment, not, not primarily about, although really it applies to all of church age, but ultimately and primarily and only about those things that would come about between Jesus speaking them and 70 AD when the destruction of the old system is shaken and torn down. <clears throat> So look with me into verse, uh, into verse 3. It says here that Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, that is east of the temple, and therefore they were seeing the, the, um, 
uh, the, the front and gold side of it as the sun set behind it. They were looking down at this from the Mount of Olives, looking down over Jerusalem, and of course seeing the glorious shine of the, of the top of the temple shining in the setting sun. And as they sat there, the four of those disciples there mentioned asked him privately, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Matthew's version and Luke's version have different phrases in here, but ultimately they're asking two questions. When is the temple going to be destroyed that you just told us about? And secondly, and when will be the end of the world as we know it? But to them, it's one question. Because they had the common Jewish understanding of their day and all over and again, haven't we seen that the disciples have no clue what Jesus is talking about? He can say it as explicitly as he wishes, like in Mark 10. I'm going to be arrested and the Jews will give me to the, to the officials and I'm going to be beaten up and whipped and scourged and then they're going to put me on a tree and crucify me. But three days after that, I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're wondering, what does that mean? What does crucify mean in, in ancient literature? What, what poetry is he trying to share us here? Like they, they just didn't get anything, no matter how clearly he told it, but they, they got it all after the resurrection, when he made it clear to them, when they had the Holy Spirit clarify things for them. But we see it again right here. What they're asking is, Jesus, you just said that the temple, the eternal, the permanent, the perpetual temple that will always be around until the whole world is remade by the Messiah when, when you come back as the Son of Man and wrap up the whole universe and make a whole new one, this eternal, everlasting temple until that time, you just said it's going to be torn down. So when will it be torn down and when will be the end of the world? That's one event, right? And Jesus gives them an answer with a rebuke that he says, here's what will be the signs of my, the temple being destroyed and the time of the ultimate end in, in what we call the Olivet Discourse because he's standing on the Olivet Mountain or the Mountain of Olives. Uh, no brownie points if you guess what they grow. It's grapes. And, and so he tells them that, that uh, uh, while he's standing there, he says these two things. He says, here's what will happen to the temple. Here's how to know it's coming. And yet there is a future day that no one knows the day of, that every generation must be careful and watching and awake and alert in preparation for it, for I will come back and judge the living and the dead that day. But the first day that he speaks of is this day coming in AD 70. Look at Look at uh, 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 his first warning, start in verse 5, and we're going to look at three different ultimate things that he's going to warn them for coming in the next generation. The, the four warnings are going to be deceptions through false Christs and prophets. That's in verse 5 and 6. Great calamities in verse 7 and 8, which will include wars and rumors of wars, and then uh, lastly, earthquakes and famines. So let's go back to verse 5 over here. <clears throat> he begins to give them the beginning, the signs of the beginning of the end. He says in verse 5, there will be, uh, many will come, sorry, verse 5 he says, Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Do not be fooled. Do not be led astray. Verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Now, now there's, a, there's an idea in the New Testament scriptures, especially through the Apostle John, that this kind of thing was happening in the first century and would happen in every generation and, and will happen right up until the end. 
And there are some ways of viewing this that are saying he's not really talking about that. He's speaking of the final one to come in the end of days. And he's going he's gonna to be the one that says, I am the Christ. But all we see Jesus saying here is that in his own generation, after he has left them, they are going to be saying there will be people who are claiming that I am that Christ, I am that Messiah, I am a prophet of God, and, and here's what God wants to do through me. In fact, this happened over and over and over again in, G, in that generation that Jesus spoke to. It was a common occurrence, particularly because, I'm not going to go into all of the, you can tell I'm breathless already, I'm not going to go into Daniel's 70 weeks and explain all of that, but we'll say this at least, the Jews could count on their fingers you're going to laugh when I say it, but not on their fingers, literally. They could count on their fingers the 490 years up until, yeah, I know, we don't have 490 fingers, that's fine. Uh, uh, 490 years that Daniel had said, in this time, there's going to be some great messianic hope. 490 years from Daniel's day, and, and that's why around Jesus' time, there was everybody in the mindset of keep an eye out for him, keep watching for him. We've been, had silence for 400 years since Malachi. The, the Christ is to come at some point so that when Jesus came, he was not the only one claiming that he was the son of man, a, a great prophet from God. He says that many will come, many will be led astray, and in fact, many had been. In Acts chapter 5, verse 36, as the apostles have been arrested and are being tried, the, 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 the Gamaliel, the, the, one of the teachers of the day, an elderly wise man, says, let's not get too uptight about another group of following, uh, sorry, another group of people following another so-called Messiah. Look, this has happened before. He says that uh, there, was, there was two people that he mentions. He says, Theudius and Judas the Galilean, both of these men were men who, who the, the uh, historical, uh, the, sorry, the, the historians of the day account that they had risen up and, and they took great numbers of Jews and, and they tried to overthrow the Romans and they were every single one of them slaughtered. Judas was beheaded and his head shown off in Jerusalem by the Romans. This had happened already before Jesus had come. In Acts chapter 8, verse 9, we see one figure that becomes a, a historical uh, uh, phenomenon, this man called Simon Magus, or Magus, or however you want to pronounce it. In Acts, verse, uh, Acts 8, verse 9, we see the apostles go to uh, Samaria, and there is this man, this magician, Simon, who, who is able to do great works and powers of God, and, 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 and he is opposed by the apostles eventually. But history tells us that this man was held by the Caesar of the day to be God in flesh, the true prophet that they were waiting for. In fact... One of the Caesars had erected a statue of Simon in his honor, saying that this is the true and holy God. Many will come and many will be led astray. He was one of the first leaders of what became Gnosticism in the following years. There was also Decithius, the Samaritan, who claimed that he, in those years after Jesus had raised and gone to heaven, he got quite a following claiming that he was the Messiah. There was also an Egyptian man who rose up and made his way up into uh, uh, the Middle East, into Judea, and he claimed that he was a prophet prophesied by Moses. He was the prophet, the teacher of God. And he came and, and he raised a, 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 a following of 30,000 Jews who were every one of them slaughtered except for the Egyptian and a few of his close men who ran away just in time. Many were coming, false Christs, claimers to the throne, false prophets, 
as verse 22 goes and tells us again later, false prophets, many followed and many were slain. In fact, the historian Josephus will allow a little bit of hyperbole here, but he says every day Nero was having to kill false Christs and those who claimed to be king of the Jews prophesied from the scriptures. This, this time was a rich time for false prophets. And Jesus said, many will come in my name saying, I am he. They will lead many astray, but you be on your guard and do not be fooled. This would be his prophecy coming and the disciples had to hold fast to the word. Don't we even find this in our day? We, we have false prophets popping up every now and then. They've got some word from God or, or maybe it's end time stuff. They know the day or hour. No one else did, not even the sun, but I know. And it costs a little bit to get into this group or buy this book or whatever it is. But, but I'll tell you the day or the hour. We have all sorts of things around us that will distract us. But those faithful Jesus disciples will be marked by believing the word of Jesus despite all of the distractions, all of the false claims, and all of the folly around us. We hold fast to the word of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Look now at verse 7. And this is probably... I think probably the most familiar phrase to us, especially literally in the last few months of Jesus' Olivet Discourse, and he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed, this must take place, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The second thing that would be coming is not just deceptions, of the Christs and the prophets, but also great calamities. First of all, through wars and rumors of wars, and lastly, through earthquakes and famines. Jesus was prophesying that, that at this crucial time of history, which Paul in 2 Corinthians and again in Hebrews calls the ends of the ages, the old age coming to a close, the new messianic age entirely being birthed new in the world. There is such, such spiritual formation and, and, and significance at this moment in history as Jesus has come and died for sinners and risen again and taken his seat on the throne next to the Father that even the political and physical world convulses with the significance of what is occurring. And so he says, there will also be wars, rumors of wars, nations rising against nation and kingdoms against kingdom. Now, now this, is, this is a common error. This is a common error to take this and think of some kind of prophecy about, about the end times. Here's, here's, what, here's what often happens. Some nation, pick some Eastern European one at random, right? Starts some war against another nation. And you'll have the people who stand to make a buck off of this, stand up and say, God has revealed to me that this is the fulfillment, the fulfillment. I know other people have thought in the past, but this is the real one. There are wars and rumors of wars today. The sign of God is coming. It is about to end. Be alarmed. Now, first of all, literally the opposite of Jesus' main application point here in the sermon. Jesus' first point of application is when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, it's all good. Do not be alarmed is literally his application. Don't mind. Don't think that the world's coming to an end. The, the grounds of the earth are not shaking and God's not about to come back. This, this has to happen. This is just the beginning of all that will lead up to both the destruction of the temple and, of course, his future coming. But he's speaking of, of his generation. He's saying literally, don't be alarmed. It's okay. But the common error here, here 
is to think that, think that this is applicable really in any other age. That We need to hear what, put ourselves into Jesus' hearer's mindset. Pretend we're the 12 disciples and there we are on the Mount of Olives looking up at Jesus, looking over our back at the beautiful temple. He's prophesying these horrible things and he says, there is a time coming and you will see it when there are wars and conspiracies, rumors of wars. In almost no generation, except for that generation, would that be a significant prophecy. Because Jesus is speaking in a time, what we call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, it was called. Only Rome, in all of history, had established such a long era of peace, both on its borders and internally, so that they had enjoyed this, this peace on earth. This is why they called their Caesars the gods who bring peace on earth. Where else has any other generation written of a time when you can't remember the last battle or war? This was so significant. The peace of Rome and Jesus stands himself in the midst of that generation and says the peace of Rome is not the eternal peace. It is not the eternal city. This is what people thought of the day. He said it's coming to an end and nations will begin to war again and kingdoms will begin to war again. This is what Jesus is saying. And in fact, it is what happened. In, in historical significance, what happened in the years after Jesus was external pressure onto the Roman Empire, internal revolts, wars, rumors of wars, and conspiracy. In the year 40, just seven years after Jesus went back to heaven, in the year 40 in Mesopotamia, there was a war where 50,000 Jews were killed. In the year 49, in Jerusalem, there was an uprising where there was 10,000 Jews slaughtered. In the year of the 50s, in that decade, all across the Roman Empire, there were Jewish revolts, not to mention other things, but there were Jewish revolts and wars against the Romans that resulted in 20,000, 20,000, 13,000, 50,000, and 10,000 deaths of the Jews in all different battles and wars. Jesus' prophecy was being fulfilled. Wars and rumors of wars will start before the Jerusalem temple is destroyed. <clears throat> but even on top of that, the rumors of wars and the conspiracies, this would primarily be against Nero the Caesar. It was so significant that, that for the first time in a long time, a, a, a Caesar was opposed by, by the people within his own nation. Nero was faced with civil war. He ended up slaughtering himself through suicide and five nations all descended with their armies down onto Italy to see who would be the next Caesar. There was civil wars and there was a year where there was four different emperors because of the, the, up, the, the turmoil there. And in the year 66, there was the beginning of the Jewish-Roman wars in all of Judea, centering finally in the year 70 on the temple itself. Jesus' prophecy was an actual, tangible, physical prophecy that only the Son of God could have spoken in such a time of peace. There'll be wars and there'll be rumors of wars. There will be the end of the peace of Rome. And then he says the earthquakes in various places and famines, which, which again, history bears out for us that in the Roman Empire, in Asia Minor, in Rome itself, all throughout Judea, and some of these are even noted for us in the Acts of the Apostles, the book for us written by Luke. There are earthquakes, there are famines, so that the historians said many people died at all of these different famines. How, how significant it is, if, if we are confused when we come to this text, the reality is that Jesus was prophesying that generation's cursing, the upheaval, the turnover of the old system. Jesus is coming back in some sense, not the true full final sense that he speaks about at the end of this prophecy, but he's saying there will be turmoil 
before the old covenant temple is torn down brick by brick. He calls this, look at the the end of verse 8. He says, there will be famines. These are but the beginning of of the birth pains. The birth pains. There's something about what Jesus is doing that it can be spoken of as as the birth of a new era. We know that Jesus will speak individually of each one of us that in order to enter that spiritual kingdom of Jesus Christ, be saved from our sins, have God forgive us, count count us as his own so that we can count him as our friend, our father, our God, not our enemy, not our judge, not our destroyer. And if you're outside of Jesus by faith, if you don't trust him as your salvation, if you don't look to his death on the cross as your soul salvation, then, then, then that is you. God is your judge. God is your enemy. God is not your father. But if by faith we we believe in Jesus and we have been made those things, we are forgiven, we are in his kingdom, all this language Jesus says, to see the kingdom and enter the kingdom by faith, you must be born again. Individually, we know that. We must each have the spirit so work in our heart that we have this, this new way of seeing the world, seeing Jesus. The spirit brings us to spiritual life. We must be born again. Let's not confuse that with what Jesus is doing on a, on a, on a large, grand scale here. And yet, the, the imagery is similar. There is something new coming. The birth pains will start. The, the pregnancy will convulse. The, the contractions will begin. The pain will be severe. But a new era of peace on earth, in another sense, is coming. When Jesus will tear down that old temple and build a, a spiritual temple, in his own body that he says is the temple. The the, the saints are the the new temple, Paul will say. In another sense, he's bringing the the heavenly Jerusalem, not the the cursed one, not not the Jewish ethnic temple, but the heavenly temple is coming down. There will be a new people so that that we are not just marked by our ethnicity and circumcision and the laws over there in the temple. We will be marked by new hearts of every ethnicity, of every class, Of every corner of the world, we will have our hearts renewed. We will have the law not external, but marked on our hearts. The church is a pure bride that comes out of heaven through the preaching of the word and glorifies the Savior, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. You can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 and 27 as we close out this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27. We know that part of the glory of the new covenant is that we don't, we are not, we are not focused or constricted to a certain locale or a certain building or a certain country, but rather we have a kingdom, a temple, a mountain, a city, all of those old covenant language. We we have that in a sense in the new covenant in an even more glorious way. Look at what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse. 25. Let's read from verse 25. <clears throat> See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. What a, what a word for Jesus' day, for the writer of the Hebrews' day, and for our day. As Jesus proclaims his sonship, his messiahship, his kingdom, and his rule, and his saving gospel, do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, he's speaking of the old covenant people, 
If they did not escape when they refused him who warns them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Jesus now speaks from the throne of God through the preaching of his word to the people on earth. He is no longer one voice on earth from a mountain or from Moses or from a prophet, not even the incarnate Jesus here before us verbally speaking. He is the son of God raised in glory, sitting at the right hand of God, speaking through his word. Do not refuse him who speaks. For those who refused him who spoke on earth received a judgment. But how much worse it must be if we refuse him who preaches to us from heaven. Verse 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, now just, just quickly, I know you want to keep reading, but just pause we're tempted there to think that he's talking about the end of the world. The things that are made are being shaken and removed. But he's not. The book of Hebrews is a comparison between the old covenant and the new covenant. We know that that's what he's speaking about now because he then speaks of those things which cannot be, spoke, cannot be shaken. He's not speaking of, a, of the next world. He's speaking of our gospel glory in Christ. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You have come not to some glorious, gold-laden, beautiful-stoned temple this morning to be impressed and charged a fee and punished if you graffiti one of the stones. You have come in this moment, though ordinary around you, to the very throne room of God. As Jesus, not physically present and yet spiritually, is here to proclaim to you that he died for sinners, you must be saved or you will be condemned in hell for eternity, that he is the one who died for your sins, was raised for your justification, and is now in heaven. Do not, friends, do not refuse him who is speaking. Some of you are, are confessing Christians who are, who are just tempted to give it up because of the, the throes and the pains and the, and the temptation of sin. And yet, Jesus says, do not refuse me. I am a savior. I will save you from your sin and even its strong temptations. Others of you are not yet saved. And the, the invitation, the command to you is that Jesus' doors are flung wide open. Come into the kingdom that cannot be shaken. You have not received a promise of something that will be destroyed by the Roman armies. You will receive a kingdom, a kingdom identity, a kingdom name, a Jesus-given new heart that cannot be shaken. So if Jesus is one who would speak in his day so accurately, so prophetically, let us not refuse him. If he is one who would pour out his wrath onto that generation for killing him, let us not now that he is raised up into heaven refuse him, but believe and to Christians who hold him by faith, rejoice that you have received in Christ a kingdom that cannot be shaken and live in obedience to his word as those who desire to give him the glory that he so deserves. Let's bow our head and pray over the word that we've received. Father God, the, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ are powerful in every age. And whether it was 
our exact day that he was prophesying about or a future day or a past day. The, 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 the point is the same, that Jesus' words never fade away. They never pass. They are not the, the uttering of a, of a Jewish fool or a, a Christ pretender or a false prophet. They are the words of the true God come into flesh for us and for our salvation. He is God of very God, truly the Lord who took on our nature so that he could die the sacrifice, die as the sacrifice, dying the death that we deserved. And in his death on the cross, Lord, we see our salvation. We praise you, Lord, for your glorious, glorious grace that as, you, as you've shown to us, you do not hold back from pouring out wrath on the guilty. And yet, Lord, you are so patient. To even that generation that slaughtered you, you gave them 40 years of repentance when the, the gospel was preached and many of them were believed and forgiven for their heinous sins. And so even now, Lord, people sit under your condemnation right this very moment. And if we were to find this building collapse, not everyone in this room would be ushered into heaven, but some would go to where they deserve the unending fires of hell. We thank you, Lord God, that you have been patient You've been patient with each of us that have been saved and you're patient with each of us that are still guilty. Please, Lord, continue to be patient and pour out your grace through the preaching of the gospel to bring near those who are far off and to cleanse and save and forgive those who are filthy in their own sin. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you and we glorify you. We thank you for your reign and your rule and ask that you would make us obedient to all the words of your scripture as we seek to follow them. And everybody said in the name of Jesus, amen.